What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are, guys, on episode 41. Last week, I was speaking with Mr. Jerry Alexander, about the commercial multiple occupancy area and uh, flex space and uh, re- renting out large buildings and splitting them up into smaller office units. This week, I'm going to be talking with the founder and CEO of Bleeper Bikes, which is a bike sharing scheme uh, that is here in Dublin, and it's the leading bike sharing scheme um, that is privately owned. And uh, if you remember back to episode number 25, I spoke with Thomas O'Connell, who is the founder and CEO of a bike sharing scheme called Moby. So I thought it only fair to bring um, the two guys on uh, separately just to kind of give us the different perspectives. And Hugh is going to be an interesting conversation because Hugh is the first mover in this market. Um, there was a thing called Dublin Bikes that came out many years ago, and it's those bikes with the stands that you have to kind of go up and release your bike from this kind of magnet lock that it has. But with Hugh, he was in China and he did some stuff that we go into today. But he noticed that the Chinese brought in these dockless um, bike sharing schemes and he thought, oh, there's an idea for Dublin. And so off he went with it. So we're going to be going into all of that today. Before I do, I thought I'd just give you guys a quick update on the Facebook group. It is still there, it's still active, and um, we're currently at, I think, 154 members. So it's slowly but steadily growing, and um, it's a bit of fun being able to sort of interact with the listeners. But also, I, I get a couple of questions and topics that people would like me to cover here in the podcast and I always suggest that you connect with me in there if you can. Alternatively, of course, you've got my social media handle, Gavin J. Gallagher. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I am spending a lot of time on Clubhouse these days. I think I've mentioned it already to you last week and maybe the week before. But I do get occasional invites from the platform and I'm able to um, invite some of you guys. So if you just connect out to me and say that you'd like to have a um, an invite, no problem, I'll send one out. Just bear in mind that it's currently only available for iPhone. Uh, that is as of the beginning of February in um, 2021, if you're listening. And also the other thing to remember is that um, for me to share, I'm going to need your mobile number. So that is something that I've, um, I've had people asking and then they're wondering why I'm looking for their mobile number, but that's how you actually share. So... Um, Today, we're talking to Hugh Cooney. Hugh, founder and CEO of uh, Bleeper Bike. It's one of the leading um, bike share companies. Well, it is the leader, uh, the market leader here in Dublin at the present. He deals with, um, what do we call them, push bikes. Whereas Thomas, who we spoke to before, deals mostly with electronic bikes. And so there's a slight difference there. It's also a very big difference in price. And so Hugh's bikes are all over the city. I think he has hundreds of them out there at the moment whereas Thomas uh, they're more expensive bikes and so it he doesn't have the same capacity to kind of spread them out all over the city but um, they're, they're both I'm using both companies in East Point primarily because I want to be able to offer the best choice to my um, tenants and the staff that work there and so guys I'm not going to uh, dwell too long on this introduction I just think it would be worth 
uh, tuning in here because bike sharing and micro mobility is a big thing. Uh, it's going to be much, much bigger in the future. The pandemic has taught me a lot of things. We, we were transporting three and a half thousand people a day into the park uh, on our shuttle service. And now we have a situation where there's, you know, a handful of people coming in every day. And so we expect a big, big increase in the number of people using bike share and bringing in their own bikes. So we are looking at increasing capacity for storage, parking areas, all of that. And I would suggest that if you're in the development business uh, and investment business, give this some thought as well, because it's definitely going to influence it. So, guys, without further ado, please welcome Mr. Hugh Cooney. Hugh, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. And um, uh, it's Friday and uh, we're all kind of getting ready for the weekend. Where does this podcast find you? Are you at home, working from home these days? Yeah, I've just come back from uh, the office to, to do it from home. Uh, it's pretty noisy in our office with the workshop underneath it. So um, uh, was, I, was, I was in the office for most of the day, but uh, now I'm back in the, the quiet of my home. No, that's good. I'm still in the office, um, workaholic that I am. So tell us, for a little bit of context, um, Hugh, if you can just tell us in a, in a minute or two, who is Hugh Cooney, first of all? Yeah, um, so uh, Hugh Cooney has been the CEO of Bleeperbike for four years. Before that, um, I was an accountant, so I'm a qualified accountant, worked with both PwC and KPMG. And uh, before that, I actually worked in the property sector for four years. I spent four, uh, spent five years in China, four and a half years of those as working with treasury holdings. So kind of my, my career out of college went from kind of property, moving back to Ireland and, and then went and did my accountancy exams. And then since 2017, I've been the CEO of Leaper. Interesting. And just from, from the point of view of chore- uh, chron- chronology, what years were you working in Treasury Holdings? I was there from um, 2006 to 2010. So Okay, so you went through like the, the, the crash and all that kind of stuff. That must yeah, have been interesting. Exactly. So when I, the, I, I was working in specifically under China project, so the, the kind of property vehicle was Creo. Um, so I wasn't involved with any of the stuff uh, Treasury would have done in, in Dublin or, or throughout Ireland or, or indeed in Battersea or any of those projects. It was much to your look. <laughs> that yeah. was a lucky fall. I mean, geez, yeah. <laughs> you could have been, you could have spent years fighting banks and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, and tell us, Hugh, just a little bit of your, your backstory. Like, I mean, where did you grow up? Yeah, I uh, grew up in Dublin. So, uh, Grew up uh, originally Rat Farnham, then we moved to um, Fox Rock. So I uh, went to primary school, Willow Park, and then uh, my dad decided four sisters. So he decided boarding school was probably a safe option for secondary school, uh, no brothers. Um, so I went to Clongos for secondary school. Um, so that was kind of the two main schools. And uh, boarded from the age of 12 to 18 in Clongos. That's interesting. I'll tell you just a, a little aside, just when you said it there, that you grew up in Rathfarnham and you moved to Fox Rock. You could have taken the words out of my mouth. I actually grew up on Ballantyre Avenue in, in Rathfarnham and then moved to Fox Rock when I was about oh. five years of age. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, my I have four daughters 
and one son. So it's just uh, <laughs> it's uh, funny similarities there. Yeah. Tell us, um, just, you know, in your early development kind of years, is there any influences or I, I don't like to call them heroes, but kind of, you know, is there, so, is there anybody that kind of stood out as kind of influential in your life and somebody that you kind of wanted to emulate? Um, I suppose different kind of ages, there was different people. So um, first teacher I can think of was uh, teacher in Willow Park, uh, Christy McDade. Um, uh, anybody who went to Willow Park or Black Rock would know him. He, he set up the Willow Wheelers and uh, he had a very unique teaching style where he'd separate the class into three rows. There was, uh, I remember the, the uh, if I remember the sections correctly, it was um, the kind of the worst road to be in was uh, jail. The middle row was purgatory. And then the best road to be in was holiday camp. And if you're sitting in holiday camp on Friday, you didn't get homework. Um, so uh, when I look back on that, I've always uh, uh, responded well to, short-term rewards because it was something you kind of had to uh, the row you had to be in on friday and uh none of the other teachers i had um really uh had that sort of setup but it was more other classes it was all about christmas exams midterm exams and summer exams so there was and um, they just seemed so far off and never really motivated me to work hard but when I taught when I, when I was in fifth class and I thought oh I just had to to work hard till the Friday and um, he seemed to get the best out of me so he was he was somebody I would uh, when I look back on kind of my uh, education I think um, uh, definitely someone I remember and really liked the, his approach to, to teaching people. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I never would have thought that a teacher would actually come up. So he must have had quite the impact on you to um, to actually for you to be bringing him up now. Hold on. Let me just turn off this telephone here. I'm disturbed in the middle of the podcast. So um, and, and was there any kind of business icons or heroes that you kind of um, used to kind of look up to? I mean, every time I ask this question, the kind of the rote reply a lot of the time is Richard Branson, you know, but I'm just curious if you had any at the time or whether business wasn't any, was something that you just weren't paying attention to as a, as a school kid. Um, yeah, I suppose it wasn't. Yeah. Well, well I suppose Michael O'Leary, he went to Clongos. So if you went to Clongos, he would have been somebody that, um, a lot of people look up to him and we used to um, have uh, the kind of past pupils union at a few events and Michael spoke us. So he was always very uh, entertaining and uh, topical as a business person. So he'd probably be the, the uh, and I like, I, I do like his kind of approach to cutting out waste and that type of stuff. So yeah. Michael yeah. would would be definitely somebody I would admire. Wow. Yeah. He, he's quite the character. All right. Um, and I can see why uh, a load of uh, students be kind of looking back and sort of saying, geez, you know, he worked in this school. So, yeah, you know, here's a path to follow. And, um, and do you, do you remember uh, any kind of particular time when the entrepreneurial kind of bug bit, uh, was it young or were you kind of further into your career at that stage? Um, yeah, I suppose probably, fourth year in school we did mini company and um we were actually the first year at clongos that mini company was reintroduced or but it was reintroduced the first year that was was brought in so um that was that was fortunate and i really enjoyed that uh i was kind of the 
elected as the uh, MD of our project and we sold these kind of training tops, rugby training tops, and it went very well. And um, I really enjoyed the experience. So that was probably at the kind of point at which I knew I, I liked the idea. Not so, I suppose I wouldn't be the, you know, if kind of the, maybe some entrepreneurs might be the real wheeler dealer, brilliant salesperson. I'm more like the organizing and the uh, putting a team together and um, that aspect, as, aspect of it. So I really enjoyed that, you know, with a class of 20 odd people in fourth year and deciding who does what and um, ultimately uh, putting the best people in the right places to to what was in the end a fairly successful uh, project for the for uh, you know for 15 16 year olds yeah it's interesting that's one of the I'm actually reading a book at the moment called who not how and it's a it's it's a good book but it, the whole point of it is that whenever an entrepreneur is trying to solve a problem, you shouldn't be thinking how to solve it. You should be thinking who can solve this for me so that you, you kind of magnify your capabilities and just, you know, have a team of people that have different skills and know which one to call upon for a particular thing. Interesting. Well, before we get into bleeper bikes, I'd love to kind of just know um, you went to China and you worked for treasury holdings, which for anyone who's not familiar with the, the story treasury holdings is one of the the more successful property businesses in Ireland and it's run by two very um, sort of well-known characters uh, Johnny Ronan and Richard Barrett and uh, both of them would have been very successful well they obviously went through their ups and downs in 2008 but extremely successful businessmen both in their own right and then working together as a team I think they were pretty unstoppable and so I'm just curious like did you, was there any, you know, what was it like working for them? What was it like working in China? And, and was there any kind of insights that you got from working there or working with them in particular that kind of has stood to you um, going forward? Yeah, and there's a lot of things I learned working for Treasury because it was such an entrepreneurial company and and I was involved in the, the China office, which um, really just... Uh, I was one of the first four or five employees. So I saw it from the very beginning. And when you start in a company early, you see all of the interesting uh, things that you mightn't see when the company is more mature. But um, yeah, uh, you know, Richard, it was China was Richard Barrett's project. So obviously Treasury Holdings was was both Richard and, and uh, Johnny Ronan, but I would know Richard much better because um, I was all the time on, on, in their China office. But uh, it was, you know, it was really uh, like, there's a few things when I think of Richard's style that I definitely um, kind of take uh, certain characteristics I couldn't necessarily um, use in an accounting firm. But when you have your own business, you can, be a bit more free to, to do what you feel is best. So one of those is make very quick decisions. So Richard was uh, was excellent. And there was no dithering. Um, you know, if something needed to be done, it just got done straight away. So uh, that's something I really uh, took with me is just get, get stuff done because opportunities can just um, fall even like a couple of weeks or a couple of months 
um, of, you know, could, you, you know, the market can change and you can miss an opportunity. So um, that was one uh, really interesting thing about Treasury Holdings is the speed at which we, we did stuff. Um, and uh, other, actually another interesting aspect, other, as well as uh, Richard Barrett being um, part of the small initial team in Treasury Holdings China, so was Rory Williams, who is now the um, CEO of the Ronan Group. So he has uh, gone and um, uh, he was the, the chief legal officer for Treasury Holdings and he's now gone with Johnny for, for Johnny's own um, property company that he set up. So I had access to two really um, very talented people in their own field. And Richard, the other thing about Richard, like Richard was, a, you know, Treasury Holdings was property focused, but Richard was a is a true entrepreneur. So if it wasn't property, it would have been something else. He was just, he's uh, uh, relentlessly driven and, um, you know, it's not necessarily relentless drive to build beautiful build buildings, it's relentless drive to do business. So um, that he, he, it ended up being real estate was his focus, but he had the core personality to be successful and he is successful in lots of other things. So. Um, yeah, I suppose the one thing, there's lots of other little things, but the one thing is the speed at which Treasury Holdings executed things was remarkable. And I think they saw the benefit of that characteristic in 2007. You know, 2007 was when the financial crash happened, kind of July, August, September. Um, Creo, uh, we had a, a big um, transaction that uh, uh, Richard had secured in April 2007 and he had two months to secure the fundraising and negotiate the uh, purchase agreements with the seller. It was a big, prop big famous property developer in Macau called Stanley Ho and Stanley Ho was uh, very old and has lots of wives so he basically said to Richard, right, if you don't close this in 60 days, you're not doing it. And it was kind of deemed impossible by people back in April to close this in 60 days because as well as the property due diligence on Stanley's assets, Richard had to go and raise 250 million of equity. Um, yes. And we had to then secure 750 million, sorry, sorry, yeah, 750 million it was of bank loans. It was a 1 billion plus transaction. Um, Stanley was selling two massive office buildings in Shanghai. Um, along with a retail complex. So anyway, uh, being the way Treasury operated, it got done from, from a, a green MOU to um, paying over Stanley. It all got done in 60 days and that closed in very early June 2007. Um, if that had gone on much longer, you know, the Richard wouldn't have been able to raise that equity and that was um, that was just always the way he did it. It was just no dithering and uh, no bottlenecks at all. Just yeah, yeah fire. exactly. And uh, it certainly stood to him in June 2007 because it, things changed so significantly just a couple of months after. Jeez, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. I mean, I remember that time so well, and I can remember being involved in a couple of different projects simultaneously and trying to juggle a couple of projects at the same time, it's really difficult because everybody wants decision-making out of you. And I remember, you know, trying to deal with one complicated problem and the other stuff is just all on hold while you're trying to deal with that one problem. So 
I can't imagine what it must be like at a level where you're up there at a bit, uh, in the billions, you know. Yeah. Um, and tell me this, did you, uh, you left Treasury and you went then and came back to Ireland, is it? Yeah, I came back to Ireland in April 2010. Okay, okay. So you're right in the middle of the recession when you arrived back. Yeah, exactly. So I decided I wanted to move back. And when I moved back, you know, the, the IMF were already here. So, you know, NAMA had been established at that stage. So my dad was an accountant and he kind of said, you know, no, nobody was recruiting other than NAMA in the property game. I actually did do a job interview for NAMA, but because all my experience was in China, um, I didn't get a job with them. And uh, my dad said that, uh, you know, you I did accountancy in college, go back and do your accountancy exams. The, the, uh, even though the normal route is straight out of college, they, the chartered accountancy it's since kind of developed where you, you could go back um, you know, and do it even, even if it wasn't the, the very uh, next step after college. So, so that's what I did. And I got a job with PwC in their corporate finance department and um, kind of ended up still doing a lot of property related stuff because a lot of work that would have come into corporate finance at that time was business plans for NAMA. Yeah. So um, I did, I, I spent three and a half years there doing my accountancy exams and, and doing a lot of, of NAMA related business plans, um, you know, that were, that there were so many of them been done at the time. Yeah, I'm sure you could tell us plenty of stories. <laughs> yeah, we, we all we all can from those years. And it's amazing just how context changes. I remember looking at the NAMA business plan and the NAMA model that they um, used to want, you know, their, their debtors, as they would call them, to, um, to, to use. And they had this behind it, like projections 10 years out, like that would have been back in 2010, 10 years out, 2020. And what they would expect to get back, and I remember thinking, based on the value of some of the assets, then God, there's not a hope Nama are going to get anything close to this. And the in the end, end, you know, things just turn around. So, you know, it is amazing. Yeah, it was around 15, wasn't it? 2015 or 2014 when everything started to kind of move into gear. Exactly. Yeah, interesting times. And so let's get into um, bleeper bikes. You. You, you spotted an opportunity. Tell us about, I mean, you were in KPMG and you've got a nice cushy job. You're, you're earning a, a weekly or a monthly paycheck. Everything is rosy and you've decided what made you want to jump out and start a company that, in the area of bicycles? Um, well, I suppose, I, yeah, so I left P, uh, PwC at the end of 2013 and I moved to KPMG. So from from 2014 onwards, I was with KPNG, and um, it was in 2016 that I ultimately uh, kind of came across the, the bike sharing idea. Um, and uh, I suppose I always kind of liked the idea of running my own business. And I used to use Dublin bikes a lot. Um, so that's kind of where, where it came about. And uh, I was over in China with my partner on holidays. So um, I used to go back to China a lot for holidays. I still still love, love China. Um, but um, uh, I saw in 2016 when I was on, on a trip in Shanghai, the first uh, kind of the stationless bike sharing model was invented in China in 2016. And I saw... Um, you know, the, and, and their first city they launched in was, was Shanghai. 
when I saw that, I thought, God, Dublin Bikes is already fantastic, but look at this use of the mobile phone and the simplification of everything. Uh, wouldn't this be fantastic in Dublin? Um, and uh, I just spent kind of six, the next six months after uh, coming across it in China, figuring out how, how I could bring that to Dublin. Um, so I was kind of, you know, still had my job at KPMG, but figuring out whether, whether it was realistic and whether there was enough of a chance to pack in a job and do it full time. And at the end of the six months, I came to the decision it was. Um, and, uh, um, you know, four years later, I'm glad I did. It's, you know, it's been a tough four years. Business is never plain sailing, but, um, you know, I, I, I know that the whole stationist model and the connectivity of the bikes compared to the chunky stations that Dublin bikes requires that, that that's absolutely the future and sure. uh, yeah. different, different ways of moving around the city um, you know other than just the car as the future as well so there was enough things there's it's always a huge risk setting up a business but there was enough things that uh, were going in that direction anyway that it was uh, like um, a risk worth taking and uh, I'm very happy I did yeah well looking back always it looks like a great move but at the time it's very difficult to decide whether it's the right decision or not and micro mobility is the big buzzword nowadays but in 2016 no one was really talking about it and I can totally relate to what you're saying I mean I think we've been trying to get um, the Dublin bikes into East Point for years and years and years and they're they're just they have like such a backlog or something like that, that they just, it never happened anyway. But yeah. it used to frustrate the hell out of me that I'd jump on a Dublin bike. And these are, to, to anyone who's listening, who's not familiar, this is the bikes that actually have a station. So you have to find a place and actually like click it into place when you're, when you're finished with the bike. So I used to, I was living in Dublin at the time and I used to walk out the front door of the house and very close by there was, a load of um, these Dublin bikes sitting in these stations. So you'd punch in your code, you'd remove the bike that's released and off you go. But when I pulled up outside my office, the bike stands would almost always be completely full. And so I'd have to cycle off to the next one. And if that was full, I'd have to cycle off to the next one looking for an empty one. And sometimes there was an app on the phone that would tell you if there was an empty one but the app didn't update as quickly. So I would arrive at a station that said that there was two free spaces and the spaces would be gone. So I used to go bonkers and, and you'd end up nearly cycling back to the house where you started to kind of find an empty station. So your uh, your product absolutely like makes 100% sense, like the fact that you can just lock it anywhere and uh, and you don't need a station. You can just basically bring it up and park it outside your home or whatever. And that's yeah. it. Somebody else can come along then and take it as they need it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the what's restricted Dublin bikes expanding. There's loads of demand for it. Like East Point Business Park would be a perfect location for a station. But um, the, the further away they go from the city centre, the costs just come exponential. So it's very successful in the city centre. Um but if they're to start adding stations to keep they, they try to keep the stations within 300 meters of each other, the stations cost a fortune um, and all of that hardware costs a fortune. So um, while the demand is there, the underlying hardware that uh, is needed to build a station just 
um, you know, it, it, it doesn't give you enough of a, a kind of a cost benefit when you when you move out of the heavily densely populated city centre. Yeah, every 300 metres, the further you go out, it, it really exponentially increases the number of stations that you need. Yeah. Exactly. Expensive. Uh, yeah, but and, yeah. and you still have that problem of, you know, stations being full, certain, you know, particularly yeah. busy areas like the central business district at nine o'clock in the morning is just, yeah. you know, there's just no stations available. Yeah. And, and, and the, the other problem with that is because the stations cost so much to build and the smallest station really, I think that economically viable would, would have at least parking five, 20 parking stations. Normally it's 40 parking stations. So therefore they're restricted in available street space because there's not so many places around Dublin where you can fit, you know, 20 to 40 uh, kind of docking bays. Whereas with our model, like, cause it just needs a Sheffield stand there can be two racks here, 20 yards down the road, another two, depending on what space is available. Yeah. But station-based schemes, because they're, you know, the groundwork's needed to be done and connecting it to the grid, because, um, you know, they need electricity. Uh, they they can't do nice small little pockets here or there. It has to be relatively, you know, large footprint um, for the 20 to 40 stations. And do you monitor the usage of... Um... Dublin bikes or the success of Dublin bikes because I would have I, I don't think I've jumped on a Dublin bike in years now um, yeah. since uh, since Bleeper bike came along I think I would have thought that it's actually replaced a lot of the usage of Dublin bikes yeah well I suppose if if you have a Dublin bikes outside your house and outside where you're going to work you're probably still going to use Dublin bikes because it's subsidized you know it's uh, the, the government pay a, a significant um, top up uh, to keep that going every year. So people are charged 35 euro, but that's not nowhere near covering its operating costs, never mind any payback on the capital investment that it's cost. So for those where it's very convenient and um, they still use it, but for people like yourself, where your destination doesn't have a station, um, we have definitely filled, filled the gap there. Um, and I know um, they're still, you know, they're still way bigger than us, but you know, our goal would be in five years time to, to do more trips in them, notwithstanding the fact that they're cheaper than us because they're subsidized. Um, I think we'll be able to hold our prices, but still do more trips in them based on, on providing a more convenient and better service. I mean, we'll obviously get into, you know, where you see micro mobility going and all that kind of stuff. But I just want to go back to those you know, six months when you were working on the business plan, like what were your key objectives back then? I mean, you, you know, obviously it's, it's a new concept even, you know, I, I mean, Dublin bikes was obviously there as an example, but you're, you're basically a pioneer in, and you're, and you're trying to bring in something. I mean, did you have to go out and find investors or did you fund this out of your own pocket or how did you get started? Yeah, um, I had to, to raise money. Um, so I had to kind of do the typical early uh, process for, for any new company of, of friends and family because nobody, you know, almost nobody who doesn't know you isn't going to invest in something that hasn't yet started. So I had to get kind of seed capital. Um, I had to figure out what the regulations were around doing this, um, what permits would be needed. Um, I had to kind of make an educated guess as to 
why people would use our service versus Dublin bikes. Um, so yeah, did, did the business plan have, as, as everyone's setting out, a very, very uh, ambitious assumptions about um, how successful it would be. And, you know, we'd start being profitable from the first few weeks, and, you know, and, and these things never end up happening. But when, before you start, you're you're always over ambitious because if you weren't you'd probably never get started so yeah um, i i was uh, uh very optimistic about how quickly it would take off and uh that kind of allowed me have the guts to to just go straight into it um and uh um you know and and, and that's what we did and we've learned loads that we didn't know now but um, you just have to kind of go in a bit blindly uh, to these things. Tell me, did you have a, a mentor or anyone to kind of guide you um, on the journey? Um, no, not not at the beginning. I, I didn't, you know, there's a lot of great facilities now that I know of um, in, in terms of Enterprise Ireland's programs and some of the startup hubs in Dublin. I've When I started off this, I wasn't, uh, is knowledgeable about the startup community um, so I time was time was of the essence and, and that's why I kind of come back to um, what I learned back in Treasury is how quickly they used to execute time was of the essence when I was getting started because bike sharing had gotten the interest because it had been so successful in China of lots of people not just bleeper and um, so I I wanted to move very quickly and um, first, first mover advantage yeah, and therefore I didn't have the time to maybe join some of the incubator programs and, you know, and I didn't, uh, I wasn't involved with Enterprise Ireland back then. Um, so now I have mentors and uh, I know different people who give me great advice, for, for, but for the first year and a half, I didn't. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that must have been a tough period of trying to guess, guess a lot of the stuff as you're kind of on your way. And yeah. um, I mean, just... Uh, comparing today with back then like what's the importance of a mentor because they've seen it before like you learn so much from your mistakes but i suppose some of it is well until you've made the mistakes you just think you know you won't make them so i'd say some of it is maybe good that it was maybe a year and a year and a year and a half later that i found a mentor because i could see the the value in them um but I suppose, you know, my uh, mentor um, that I have through like Enterprise Ireland's HBSU company, he would see a lot of other startups and kind of introduce you to, to some concepts that are proven to work um, that I used to be a bit sceptical towards, but now I'm not as sceptical as I was when I started out. Um, and, also, and also introduce like simple things like what, you know, we'd ask what, what's the kind of one area of the business you're weak in and would like an introduction to. And I would say that and, you know, they, they have such a connection through being involved in the startup community for so long. He'd be able to, he was able to introduce me to someone who's, who's been able to help us. So is the connections and uh, just showing you the tools that, you know, are proven to work for businesses would be two big things we've gotten out of the mentors. And when you, I mean, before the mentors came on board, you were kind of feeling your way through it just yourself. At what stage did you sort of start to feel confident that this was going to work? Um, I always knew it was going to work. It was just about 
whether we've got our timing and whether we'd have enough money to be able to be there when it would kind of take off. Because, you know, when you're competing against an alternative that's subsidized, you're not going to win in price. So therefore, it's going to take you a while to build up your credibility and other things that will make customers choose you. So um, it was, uh, it, you know, it's, I, I really think we're no, we're only at the tip of the, the iceberg. Like we did four, 400,000 trips last year. 400,000. Wow. That's yeah, big number. Yeah. Dublin bikes did, they dropped the last, they used to do about 4 million, but they did about 2 million last year. So we still only did 20% of theirs. Um, so, you know, uh, we're nowhere near where I think we could be in terms of the amount of numbers of trips we get. And we're improving all the time. Like there's, there's bugs in our, our app that we're, we're solving every kind of couple of weeks, we get on top of another bug and there's a finite number of bugs, uh, before the user experience is just perfect. So I know when the user experience of the app is perfect and the, there's a couple of things on, on the design of the bike and we'll have a new um, we'll have a new version of a bike and, uh, at some point. So I know when we have all of the components perfect, it will, it will really take off. Um, so um, it's just moving around by, by bike is just so much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we'll get there with making a, you know, eliminating all the user experience and, uh, you know, f- 4 million trips and beyond is what I'd like to be doing in five years time. Five years. Okay. And, um, do you, do you need to expand beyond Dublin to do that? Or do you see yourself just staying focused on this market? Um, see myself staying focused on Dublin. Um, there's, you know, Cork, Galway, Limerick have a scheme that's subsidized by the NTA. And to a certain extent, if the NTA. That's the National Transport Association. Authority, you know, they have invested in those schemes and, um, there's, I, I get some sense that within the NTA, there's uh, people that might be a bit fearful that they would be criticised for that investment, not being a good investment if Bleeper went to those places and it was a huge success. So um, kind of need to, to let those schemes um, do their thing and, and maybe there would be a realisation somewhere down the road uh, that Bleeper bike is, is overall good for the state, but I don't want to be pushing against a, a closed door because this is a you know this is a transport public service low margins if you've got people trying to kind of resist you and make life difficult for you it's already very difficult that um you know if there's external forces for whatever reason um then uh not not worth it better off kind of putting our entrepreneurial energy in in other areas yeah, well, there's enough sort of wreckage along the, the road from, from businesses that did try to take on big, you know, um, incumbents. And Ryanair, you mentioned earlier, I mean, during back in the early days, they had a really difficult time with British Airways and um, Aer Lingus and all of that kind of stuff. You know, people just don't like the, the, the small guy coming in and starting to kind of hoover up business on them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Michael O'Leary is was fantastic for for ending you know being able to succeed in spite of that but there's way more companies that fail because you have those resistant forces so yeah um i i prefer to to take on too many battles if we can keep ourselves busy focusing on areas where there's not resisting forces in the way 
Now, I wanted to just ask you, I mean, I know from my just, I don't know China the way you know China, but I have seen articles and photographs of, you know, mountains of bicycles that they, they, they kind of overblowed, you know, went kind of a bit over the top on the bike share thing. Like what, in your opinion, went wrong there? And how do you know that you're not going in the same kind of problematic direction? Yeah, I suppose in, in China, the, their local uh, authorities were hands off and um, kind of allowed the Chinese companies who, who were uh, in bike sharing put out as many bikes as they liked. Um, and uh, European cities, that was never going to work. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we tried in, in June 2017, I tried to uh, deploy bikes in the city centre without having the full blessing of the local, of Dublin City Council and they took our bikes off the street. Right. So um, I, I was uh, the person who thought, uh, you know, I didn't need permission and um, it backfired. So, uh, but thankfully, you know, we were able to wait a year for the rules to be brought in. Mm-hmm. But in China, the companies just put the bikes out there and the government didn't come down hard on them. And uh, now they're starting to come down harder and harder because it's just maybe they thought the problem would solve itself after a year. It didn't. There's still too many bikes on the streets. Um, and I hear from from people I know over there that uh, they're really uh, taking more and more bikes off the streets. So it's it's getting solved. Um, it's hard to explain why they they it's it's a very entrepreneurial country so maybe on one hand the government wanted to really encourage this industry that was born out of china so they did you know and and, and in doing that they they over encouraged it so um i'd say that is something to to do with it that it was like you know their invention the last thing they wanted to do is you know uh, discourage the number of bikes on the streets um, and unfortunately that just doesn't work when you've limited a number of street space yeah somebody needs to to lay down the rules because private companies don't perform well when um given just an open book yeah, yeah I- exactly i have seen to anyone who's not familiar like there are photographs on google and stuff that you can look at and i'm talking mountains of bicycles like you know, maybe a million bicycles or something like that. It's it's just incredible. And so many of these companies, they just went off, raised huge amounts of capital, bought millions of bicycles and just like deployed them everywhere. And so you were kind of walking down the street and the footpath was just like completely blocked by bicycles everywhere. And that is just bringing me to my next point, Hugh, is, um, is there, because one of the biggest concerns I have in, in East Point, we've been approached by multiple um, what is it? Scooter companies looking to kind of put electric scooters in, and we had one person saying, you know, that they were prepared to give us fifty scooters, um, completely free, and just like leave them in the park. And we actually turned it down because, from my point of view, it would turn into some sort of a similar problem where people are just you know dropping them everywhere. How do we control the you know the parking of scooters? And I mean, clearly. You know, you have control now of the way your bikes are parked and people are kind of expected to put them in specific locations and stuff. How do you control that stuff? Because it, if you become a nuisance, then you can you can kind of expect some fallout from that with local authorities kind of like saying either you sort this out or we're going to kind of pull your license or whatever. 
Yeah, I think the operators like ours have to be sensible. Like there's there's a lot of people who say, oh, the, the bikes or the scooters should be allowed park anywhere because, you know, that's better for the user experience. But that just doesn't work because if 10% of the people are lazy and park them outside your door and outside the door of Spar, that, that you know, people will be sick of that very quickly. And unfortunately, there are 10% of people who will always not care about others and they won't kind of park in a nice, tidy way. So I think for the first, for the next 12 to 18 months, it just has to be traditional uh, rules around them being locked to um, proper parking infrastructure uh, either you know the same bike either for 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 our bikes our bikes have to be parked the same type of bike rack as somebody would park a private bike and and scooters it should be the same maybe there maybe there's a simpler version of it because a scooter doesn't need as much kind of surface area to lean against and but they need to be locked to something for the next year two years until um, they're just normalized a bit because there's there's both just ignorant people who use them and, and park them wherever they feel like. And then there's also kids and other people who come along and just for uh, for the sake of being a nuisance will throw them into the middle of the road. So I think safe approach is just they need to be locked to something fixed into the ground. Um, a year and a year and a half to be improvements in technology. Geofencing is is a big thing as in that will mean the user has to park it in a certain space but you know geof it may mean it may rule out the ignorant people who just park wherever they feel like it but it won't rule out the kids and other people who come and lift it and throw it a bit like you know you see trolleys you see it's it's very similar you know there's a rule trolleys got tethered to each other we all have to pay a euro it's because there's just enough uh, people out there that don't give a damn and if something can be moved and put in people's way they'll they'll do that so um yeah it's a good point it's human behavior is just to, to take the easy way out and like wheel the trolley right up to your car and then just drive off and leave it right there in somebody else's parking space exactly. so obviously that one or two euro that you have to put in kind of trains people to kind of bring it back and reclaim their their euro exactly that's an interesting one. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of scooters, because I mean, the next big thing, I, I see them now every day driving into work. I can see, uh, you notice I'm saying driving into work. The I see um, more and more and more electric scooters. And I understand that they're not actually permitted by law yet, but I think there's, there's going to be changes to that coming soon. But one of the biggest issues you have with them is charging them because like if, you know, what you were saying about parking, you know, on a, in a Sheffield stand, but that's not going to be much use to somebody with a scooter if it runs out of batteries. So how is that going to be solved? Have you got any kind of thoughts on how this is being going to be approached? Um, yeah, I suppose there's, if scooter for your own, if you have a privately owned scooter, obviously you'll take care of the charging yourself. You'll just carry it into your office. For shared scooters, in the same way the bleeper bikes are shared, the uh, keeping the batteries charged is a very big cost. And it's questionable whether the unit of economics makes sense. The big companies will say, yeah, we're making loads of money. But, you know, if they're having to send staff out swapping over batteries um, to 
kind of make sure that they're charged for the next user, uh, it's it's very, very expensive. So uh, I don't really have a very good answer for that other than um, it's uh, it's something that the industry is really trying to, to solve and come up with creative ways of to, to try and make the, the cost of, of swapping over the batteries and keeping the vehicles charged as low as possible. And do you, uh, but, what do you think of, I mean, I know that Lime or one of those companies in, in San Francisco, they actually, they brought in a thing where if you brought the bike into your home in the evening and charged it up, that you actually could make some money on it. But that then turned into like turf wars where people were sort of saying, this is my you know area. <laughs> you can't take any bike or scooters in from here. These are mine. Um, is that an issue or is that something that you can kind of foresee doing in Dublin or is it just that's been ruled out? I think that's been ruled out and uh, Lyman and the rest of the, the big companies now are employing their own people to go around with. So all the batteries now have swappable batteries. So the first generation, they had to bring the scooters back to the warehouse. So they have swappable batteries, but it's still a big cost having your staff going around swapping batteries and um, being able to kind of cover all of these operating costs and the scooter to still be a low enough cost that users are willing to pay. Um, so it's not a great business model if, mm. if you've got like loads of staff going around Dublin swapping over batteries. So um, there's a lot of money going into it. One of the answers might be the bigger the battery, the less it needs to be swapped over um, between kind of you can get more trips out of it before it needs to be swapped over. There's talk about uh, wireless charging. So maybe, you know, there will be kind of lock docking bays for them all that can be just kind of become wireless chargers. So loads of money and loads of entrepreneurs focusing on this sector. But uh, the, the perfect solution isn't out there yet. Mm, yeah. And is there, I mean, talking about the micro mobility sector in general, what are you most excited about in, in the coming years? Most excited about um, cities like Dublin eventually getting to a percentage of people commuting by bike um, that really should like D Dublin is so flat and we've only like three or four percent of people cycle by bike and um, you, you know you cities like Copenhagen Amsterdam it's more like 50 percent of people commute by bike um, so is getting is where it will be in 10 20 years it won't be three percent it might not be 50 percent but it's going to be something um, a multiple more than the amount of people that commute by bike today because we've just got a perfect city for it so it's just enjoying the uh seeing how this all plays out and how many more people start cycling and and um, i think it's the perfect uh it, it also the fact that not just a, something that is destined to take off anyway but the whole shared shared versus ownership uh economy and how um it applies so well to bike to a bike if you want to be an annual member of uh bleeper bike which gets you four rides for for an hour each day it's 75 euro per year to own your own bike the 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 lock and the lights alone will cost you 75 euro never mind your annual maintenance and um so therefore you know not even thinking about the cost of buying your own bike the accessories and the servicing would cost you more than an annual bleeper bleeper bike membership so the kind of the the value offering of sharing a bike versus owning your own bike is 
very compelling. Um, so that's kind of one thing that more and more people are starting to do the maths on. Should I, sh- should I rent or share versus own? And then we're in this uh, kind of a, a space with, with cycling and, and a micromobility that is, is destined to boom. So there's two things I think that are, um, are going to, uh, you know, make numbers move in our favor in terms of increasing our passenger numbers. Yeah, that's something to be excited about, right? If those are the numbers, like 3% versus 50%, there's a lot of growth potential in there. Absolutely. Interesting. And in terms of just strengths and weaknesses and stuff like that, I mean, what what would you say is the biggest struggle that you've had running your own business? Um, And I'll get into your superpower as well, but I mean, in terms of the struggles that you found, what's the most difficult thing that you face as a kind of just a, per, a CEO or a founder trying to run your business? Um, yeah, I suppose I wouldn't be the natural salesman. And for any business, you have to you have to sell and you have to convince either a buyer or a stakeholder to come around to your way. So that wouldn't be uh something i'm brilliant at so um you know you, and you you need you need you need that so that would be something that uh i would i would love to be better at yeah it's a tough thing it's and it's not everyone not everyone's cut out to be the sales guy so it's uh yeah it's tough do you use other people like have you got sales people now on your team or it's it's not even uh, it's not sales in that sense because the bikes kind of sell themselves. It's kind of it's convincing people whether it be, uh, you know, local uh, authorities, councillors, or local authorities as well. It's selling in that sense. So it's persuasion, uh, is what you're talking about. Y- yeah, exactly. It's yeah. So, um, but but per- persuading is what we need to do to sell because we need to get permission to to do to to kind of provide the service. Um, so that's, there's a great book, by the way. Um, there's a guy called Robert Caldini, I think his name is, and he's got a book uh, called Persuasion. And it's it's all of that kind of stuff. It's how to be a better person that's persuading people to kind of help you and things like that. You know, he's got all these kind of subliminal things that actually are going on in your head. OK, yeah, it's worth it. It's very interesting. And it goes into all sorts of stuff like um you know, even he went into the Hare Krishna and the fact that they used to hand this flower to you. And uh, they, they went into the science behind that. And the reason they were handing a flower to you is that if somebody gives you something for free, you feel obligated to kind of even just be nice and listen to them. Do you know what I mean? Like you've received something and therefore now you owe something to them. And, uh, and what they used to do is the person, they, they would watch and the person would, you know, listen to them, maybe give them some money, do whatever. And then they go around the corner and they dump the flower on the ground and they just continue walking. And the Hare Krishna knew this would happen and would they would walk over and they would pick up the flower so that they, they could use it for the next guy. And, uh, and this was just, and, but it's actually, there's a science to the persuasion and all that kind of stuff. So it's well worth having a look at that book. Okay. Uh, and that's a good segue. Just wanted to know, is there any books that you would recommend uh, are you an avid reader or is there anything that you think that would be useful for people to read? Um, no, I'm not an avid, avid reader, but the one kind of book I've read over the last couple of years that I found helpful because back to the fact that I wouldn't consider myself a great persuader or a salesman, however you want to say, would be um, uh, 
it's the shoe dog. Uh, oh yeah, Nike. The night the founder yeah, of Nike. Nike by something Knight. I've forgotten his Philip name. Philip Knight. Yeah. Philip Knight. That's it. But that I really enjoyed that because he he was kind of the same. You you think of Nike and you assume there's going to be some slick, brilliant salesperson behind it, but he kind of described himself as an introvert and didn't like selling. So I kind of. I liked that because I thought, geez, you, you know, to, to run a good business, you don't have to be a brilliant salesperson. So that's yeah. And to grow something so massively, like um, he, he's a real inspiration. And it's funny you say that because that you're the second guest I've asked that who's come up with Shoe Dog and uh, Philip. Really, so really great book. that has to be a book that everyone will have to go out and buy now. I have it in my own uh, bookshelf. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, personal habits that have contributed to your success. Can you identify anything? I've always been very organized. I used to, in, in Clongos, they used to call me uh, uh, after the name of a teacher that was uh, almost OCD with organized Asians. So I've always been very organized. And I think that um, stands to, to me well when you've got a you know, run and we've 13 people working for the company now. And, um, you know, we don't have the resources to kind of employ HR people and that stuff so you've got to be as a CEO to keep everything going and keep every everyone happy you've got to be organized and um that that's a habit I think that uh got slagged for a lot in school but I'm glad stands you know. yeah it stands to be exactly and and Hugh what age are you now at this stage 39 okay so you're coming close to the big 4-0 yeah tell this, me this year this year uh, yeah. what advice would you give your 20 year old self now with all the experience that you have? Is there any particular advice that stands out? Um, no, I think I kind of, when I look back at the different things, everything has helped me in some way, you know, obviously the time in China has helped what I'm doing today and the time I did in PwC and, and KPG helps me a lot as well. Cause I, I can look after all our own stuff that you, you know, other uh, founders might need a CFO for so is uh, you know just keep if if you do want to set up your own business you know don't don't go do it just for the sake of it um, you know keep keep doing stuff that will help you is beneficial to you in some way and and only go set up a business if you really think there's a chance in it because a lot of a lot of people say they'd love to set up their own business but you know the, the the right opportunity mightn't be the first thing you think of so don't um don't don't think you're missing out because when you're you know when you're waiting for the right opportunity once you're upskilling in some other area that will that skill will help you at some point yeah yeah that's good advice a, a lot of people seem to be caught you know caught by the glamour of entrepreneurship and you know if you go and check almost any profile on instagram these days it has entrepreneur written there <laughs> and it, and it's it's like it's like a badge of honor yeah oh I, i'm a, i'm an entrepreneur and it's amazing you know it used to be that being like a footballer or an athlete or a you know you know movie stars that was what everyone to be but it seems like nowadays it's entrepreneur yeah and uh, that that will change like everything um, yeah. But yeah it does seem to be in fashion at the moment well there's no better there's no quicker way to go you know to lose hair or go gray than to start your own business. Absolutely. And I don't think a lot of people realize that certainly the glamour of it. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, I actually quite like listening to Gary Vaynerchuk is because he's quite authentic in that regard as he comes out and he says, you know, this is not for everyone and don't, 
like don't get caught up in the glamour and the kind of this sense that, oh, you know, I'm going to become a multimillionaire. As Richard Branson used to say, you know, when somebody asked him, how do you become a millionaire? He says, it's really easy. Start out as a billionaire and then invest in an airline business. <laughs> yeah. And quick enough, he became a, a millionaire. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, Hugh, it's been really great to have this conversation today. Um, I just wondered if you have uh, any advice that, um, you know, if you got any particular advice that you'd like to part, uh, is there anything that you think that would stand to our listeners um, in going forward with their own careers and stuff? Um, just back to that point is, you know, what, whatever you're doing at the time, if you're learning something, well then um, what you really love to do will come along at the right time. But so, sometimes people rush to, rush into to things uh, too quickly, but just keep, keep learning and picking up a skill and so an opportunity will come on, come at some time, but don't, don't force it and, and jump at the first thing that comes your way. Be, yeah. Be, be patient. Be patient and be picky. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, how can people find you if they wanted to reach out to you? LinkedIn is the, the best way. Um, so uh, Hugh, Hugh Cooney at LinkedIn. And what about, your website bleeper bike website uh, so our website's bleeperactive.com bleeperactive.com okay great stuff all right hugh lovely to talk to you and uh, wishing you every success with uh, bleeper bikes and long may it your continued rise and uh, success and i'm looking forward to hearing you telling us that you, you've hit 15 or 20 percent uh, of bike users in the dublin city likewise Th thank you very much gavin it's been a pleasure all right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that uh, with the conversation with Hugh Cooney. And he's um, I've gone and put a lot of the links that we discussed there today into the show notes. So you're going to find a link to Bleeper Bikes, a link to uh, Dublin Bikes, just so you can see what we're talking about in case you're not aware. And then I put links to the various books that were discussed. So we had Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. We had a book called Influence by Robert Caldini. I think I called it Persuasion in the interview, but it's actually uh, uh, called Influence. And then uh, Hugh mentioned his book that he liked, uh, which was Shoe Dog by Philip Knight. So I put links in there to those um, three books. And then I've also put a reference to Treasury Holdings to anyone who doesn't know what Treasury Holdings is. If you're Irish and you're in the real estate game, it's highly likely you'll have heard of it before because they were kind of the giants in the Irish market. But uh, for anyone outside, just a, a little reference there, probably a wiki page or something like that. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. That is all for episode 41. I'm your host, Gavin. <laughs> Here I am reading the wrong intro. Um, yeah, that's it for... So that's it for episode 41 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. Please find the uh, web links as discussed in the show notes. If you found this episode useful, please share it out with a friend. And uh, if you have time, please give us either a five-star rating or a review over on the iTunes platform or wherever you listen to. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, again, you'll find me in the Behind the Facade community in Facebook or alternatively, on my social media handle, Gavin J. Gallagher. I'm about to kick off with a um, clubhouse room now. So you guys, um, I hope to see you soon. And um, I, I guess I'll catch you all next week. Take care. Mm -hmm.